0: Well, as an under-shepherd, I am to lead you uh, to still, quiet waters. Uh, My job is to lead you to streams of living water, where uh, your spiritual thirst can be satisfied. And you'll be refreshed uh, and revitalized uh, each and every week. And tonight, when we're done, you may feel as though I've turned a hose, a fire hose on you and asked you to drink (laughs) instead of leading you to a water fountain. Um, But I'm not going to apologize. I'm just warning you up front, Um, and it's going to require a little more reflection throughout the course of the coming week than is normally the case. Right, we always want to leave with things to reflect on, but I'm going to ask you uh, j- just to be ready for, that, um, for, for more reflection. Um, our outline um, will give you a clue regarding the, the ground we're going to cover tonight, uh, but it also is going to give you some points to hold on to as you do that reflecting this week. The outline's in your normal position in the bulletin, and there are only seven points. (laughs) I told you. We're going to look at a word of warning, a kiss of betrayal, a touch of mercy, a word of rebuke, a look of compassion, tears of repentance, and then finally an act of the will. As question 90 of the Shorter Catechism says, if we're going to pay attention and if we're going to remain engaged without being overwhelmed through this study tonight, uh, we need to prepare to hear. And we need to prepare to hear so that um, uh, the word may become effectual to salvation. And so to do that, let's pray together, all right? Uh, Father, by your spirit, would you grant power to the preaching of your word this evening? grant all of us spiritual eyes and ears that we need to appraise and apprehend the truth regarding Christ and his gospel. And we ask that you would awaken our attention and convict us and challenge us as always, but then also as always, we pray that you would refresh us and encourage us and comfort us. I am unfit for this task to which you've called me, so would you attend to me? and? Grant me grace and fill me with your spirit that I might do something good for you, for Christ, for his church. And I pray these things for Christ's sake and for the sake of his church. Amen. Well, let's begin first with the word of warning. Uh, in verse 39, you'll notice Luke says that Jesus emerges from the upper room. Uh, he is headed out to the Mount of Olives. Luke says it was his custom and it was his custom because it is something that he has been doing every night since he arrived in Jerusalem. Um, It was a secret place that he would flee to. It was a place where he would escape the crowds. It was a place that he would gather with his disciples and they would talk and they would pray and they would rest. But on this particular night, he's a little more intense than he has been up to this point. He skips maybe the conversations of the best and worst of the day. Uh, He skips going back over and rehearsing the teachable moments of the day, and he hones in specifically on one, one thing that he wants them to do, and that is he wants them to pray. And he's specific about what he wants them to pray about. He tells them that they should pray that they may not enter into temptation. It's a very specific directive. Uh, He told them to pray so that they wouldn't be enticed to sin. He tells them to pray so that they wouldn't succumb or to give in in the midst of the trials of fidelity, uh, the trials of integrity and virtue that he knew they were about to encounter. He tells them to pray so that they wouldn't experience a a lapse of faith or a lapse of holiness or a lapse of character as the pressure mounted in those hours that were ahead. He knew that they were going to experience tremendous amounts of pressure and that they were going to be tempted to forsake him. They were going to be tempted to run. They were going to be tempted to to give in. And he knew that if they were going to need strength, if they were going to remain steadfast and persevere in the midst of the pressure they were about to experience. It was actually the same prayer that he instructed them to pray and instructed us to pray back in chapter 11 if you remember. He said pray that you would not be led into temptation and that the Father would deliver them from evil because evil was coming. And he'll say as much in just a minute. And, and if they weren't sure what to say, it, it hit me this week if they weren't sure what to say, they He he probably could suggest they pray Psalm 86 that we just read moments ago. And we know how important this was to him because he leaves to go and pray himself, but when he comes back, they're asleep. But rather than um, chastise them or reprimand them for falling asleep, he simply instructs them again. He makes the same plea. This is no time to sleep. Get up. Pray that you won't enter into temptation. And it's all because the time of betrayal and arrest had come. Right? It's, what it's, been, it's been coming for several weeks, and we're finally there, and, and they needed to be ready. They were not going to be able to stand on their own, they're not going to be able to rel- rely on their own power to make it through what was ahead. Peter may have thought he was ready, right? Last week, verse 33, Peter thought he was ready to go with Christ to prison and to go with Christ to death, but he wasn't. None of them were. No matter how sincere any of them might have been. Because they were underestimating the circumstances they were about to walk into, and they were overestimating their own strength and their own power and their own ability to deal with it. And Jesus knew it. And for those of us who also have that tendency to underestimate our circumstances and to overestimate ourselves and our strength, the truth is the same. In the midst of trials and temptations that we face, in the words of Ralph Davis, the way of protection, the way to stand is by prayer. There's no training, he says, required for this. No series of classes to take. No need to develop greater coping skills. Simply cry to God to keep you faithful. Philip Rykin puts it this way He says, We can take the same principle and apply it to the dark night of every soul. Is anyone ashamed or afraid? Is anyone confused? Is anyone in grief and pain? Is anyone discouraged or desperate? Is anyone anxious? Is anyone uh, striving in lonely agony? Let that person pray. He says, when we do not know what to do, the thing to do is pray. When there is nowhere else to go, go to God in prayer. This is not only what Jesus told his disciples to do, but it is also what he did himself. And beloved, in verse 44, Jesus gives, or the example that Jesus gives us actually shows us that the greater our distress, the more we should persist in prayer. The tendency is for the distress to mount and for us to flee, when actually it's just the opposite. It says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Listen again to Pastor Riken. He says, even in the extremity of Jesus' greatest distress, he persisted in prayer. So the harder things get, the more earnestly we should pray. When we're feeling most afraid, most discouraged, most worried, most despondent, most anxious, most defeated, that is just the time we should be most in prayer. And that brings us to The kiss of betrayal in verses 47 and 48. We've already pointed out in our study several times that Judas has been with Jesus probably from the beginning, right? Or very close to the beginning. He traveled with him, he had learned from him, he had heard him teach in public, he had heard him teach in private. He had ministered alongside Jesus. He had ministered to Jesus. He had been sent out to minister in Jesus' name. He had seen the power of Jesus. He had seen the authority of Jesus. And yet despite the proximity, right? despite Judas's proximity to Christ, Judas still did not have faith in Christ. But he didn't just reject Christ. He betrayed Him he acted treacherously and he turned him over to his enemies and he did so by taking advantage of the position that he had that he had as one of the disciples right he was in the inner circle and he used that to his advantage he knew the secret place where jesus would go he knew where and when jesus would be most vulnerable But what was truly more devastating was the fact that Judas knew Jesus loved him. He knew he could get close enough to Jesus to give Jesus a kiss, right? That's the sign. He knew he could get close enough to Jesus because he knew Jesus loved him. He could give him that sign, that symbol of brotherly affection and love that would turn into a sign of betrayal. And he knew that because Jesus had graciously let him in and loved him and cared for him and treated him just like the other 11. But rather than reciprocate, rather than return that love and that care, Judas took advantage of it for his own gain. And he led the religious leaders right to him. You can imagine he... He walks up to Jesus and he puts his hands on either shoulder and he maybe looked him in the eye. I doubt it. Kisses him on the left or his right cheek and then his left and then stands back and lets the dominoes fall. And notice Jesus didn't say, Judas, why... Would you you betray me with a kiss? He doesn't say me. He says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? In other words, Judas, think about what you're doing. Are you going to go, go through with this cosmic treason? Are you going to betray the one and only divine Son of God who has loved you and cared for you? And of course, the answer was yes. And beloved, for the sake of time, I just want to ask a few questions. Have you ever felt betrayed? Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever had someone you trusted and invested in and depended upon and loved use you, turn around and use you for their own end? Did they ever abandon you? Or turn their back on you? The good news is that Jesus understands. If that's been you and you've been in that position before, Jesus understands. He knows your pain. He knows your heartache. For His betrayal was the most treacherous of of all betrayals. And this one who was betrayed is actually a friend who sticks closer than a brother and will never betray you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you because he was in fact betrayed for you. And that is good news. Well, it's obvious that the other 11. And the, it, it, well, it's, it's obvious to the other eleven that Judas and the group that he brought with him, um, you know, what what they were what they were wanting to do, right? The eleven knew that, and they're not going to just sit back, right, and just watch this all unfold. Watch those dominoes fall. They've got to intervene. They, they, in their mind, they can't turn a blind eye to the treachery that, that is taking place. They're not going to allow an innocent man to be taken away. And even though they asked Jesus what they should do, it's really, I think it's really just a formality. I think in some of their minds, or maybe in all of their minds, they had already determined that they were going to fight back, especially Peter. And He's, already, he's ready. And we learn from John's gospel that he grabs a, he, he grabs a sword, he, he took a sword, and he takes a swipe at one of the uh, servants of the chief priest and cuts off his ear. And Jesus immediately steps in. No more of this. Stop. And we wonder why. Why, why would Jesus want, want them to stop? And the answer is because this is not what What Peter's doing is not what Jesus had come to do. Jesus hadn't come to be a revolutionary. Jesus hadn't come to start an uprising. All Peter's doing is adding fuel to the fire. Peter's doing what what Peter does, right, Or, or did. Because Jesus didn't need to be defended. All Peter's doing is getting in the way of what Jesus came to do. We've said on more than one occasion, this is a, a sovereign, predetermined plan of God. And for Peter to step in and to try to thwart the arrest and to try to thwart the plan that, that God had set in motion to transpire was simply a way of thwarting the plan of redemption. Jesus wasn't going to resist because Jesus had already made up his mind that he was going to submit. But we'll talk about that in just a minute. And to reinforce his instruction, Luke says, Jesus touches the servant's ear and heals him. And it was a touch of mercy. And in doing so, he dispelled any potential idea that Jesus had come to wage a physical war. The battle that Jesus had come to wage wasn't physical, it was spiritual. Right? And his enemy was, was not flesh and blood. He had come to build up, not tear down. Jesus had come to heal, not to harm. He had come to crush the head of the serpent, not to lop off heads and ears of men. It wasn't time for vengeance. It wasn't time for retaliation. There would be a time when He would come and He would set all things right, He would exercise justice. It just wasn't going to be this night. Because there was something greater that he had to do. First I think we need to admit that we very much like Peter, we we are very much like Peter because our natural inclination is that whenever we're hurt or someone we love is hurt, the first thing that we want to do is hurt in return. When someone has wronged us or betrayed us, the first thing that we want to do is is to seek vengeance. but God alone has said he or God has said that he alone will repay. Right? Vengeance is his, not ours. He alone is the only just judge. He alone is the only one who will judge fairly and impartially. He will defend us one day. He will one day make everything that is wrong right. And we must rest in that. And thank the Lord for that. And secondly, we need to understand that Jesus was consistent to the end. Was he not? He was a healer. And the last person we see him heal is one who was seeking to kill him. He's always been and continues to be gracious and merciful to his enemies. And it tells us that no one is beyond the grace and mercy of God. No one is out of his reach. As long, I heard this said a a few weeks ago, as long as there is breath, there is hope. No matter what the sin. And as we learned in chapter 6, if you'll remember, having been loved and forgiven much, what are we to do? Love and forgive. Even our enemies. And Jesus gives us that example here. Well, having uh, healed the servant's ear, he then gives a word of rebuke to those who have come to take him away. Look at verse 52. The kindness that he expressed as he healed this servant's ear is in stark contrast to the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, the officers of the temple and the elders who had come to take him away. They they came with swords and clubs as if he was on the top ten list of of the FBI's most wanted list. But he exposed them for who they were. Right? They, they, had, had, they had many opportunities which, which they could have grabbed him. But they all would have been during the light of day. And of course, they wouldn't come at the light of day because it would have exposed them. And so they come at night. They come at night, but that also exposes them. It exposes their fear. It exposes their cowardice. And it also exposes who was behind what it was they were doing. Because the darkness and evil that had entered into Judas, right, was leading the way. It was Satan who was driving what was going on, and those dark forces of evil were at work, and they came in the cloak of darkness because they didn't want to be exposed by the light. It was a strong indictment on these leaders, right? These leaders were supposed to be, you know, they were considered the guardians of the law. They were stalwarts of the faith. They were pillars of the community. And yet here they are. And Jesus' rebuke points that out. But it doesn't faze them. Right in verse 54, it says, Luke says, They seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. They haven't been hindered at all. And while most of the 11 if not all of the 11 scattered and ran Peter follows at a distance. Again, remember he said he was willing to go to prison and willing to go to death with Jesus and so now he's attempting to prove it. His he he sincerely meant what he said because he deeply loved Jesus. You know, we give Peter a hard time. He was impetuous. He was headstrong. But there's one thing we can say about Peter in the positive sense, and that is he loved the Lord Jesus. But on this night, it was going to take more than love to remain faithful. Even a sincere love was not going to be enough. No matter how sincere and deep his love may have been, that's why he needed to be praying in the garden when he wasn't. He failed to pray. And we see the consequences. Three times he's given the opportunity to express his faith in Christ, to profess faith and to stand with Christ and, and express his love for Christ. And three times he fails. And this, these failures weren't, he, he wasn't reluctant His denials were immediate. He didn't hesitate. They were emphatic, and I I think they happened so fast, I don't think he knew what he was doing until he saw the look. Verse 60 says, and immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. We don't know where Jesus was in relation to Peter. He could have been standing somewhere in the courtyard. He might have been walking through the courtyard from one court to the next. But what we do know is immediately after Peter made his statement, the rooster crowed just as Jesus said it would, just as Jesus said it would, and their eyes meet. But remarkably, this look wasn't a look of condemnation. It wasn't a look of disappointment. It wasn't a look of disapproval. It wasn't a look of disdain. It was a look of compassion and mercy. It was a look of sympathy and concern. Think about this. In the midst of his own dreadful circumstances, knowing what was about to take place, He was still thinking about Peter. He was deeply concerned for the circumstances and suffering of Peter, who had not listened to him earlier when he said, you need to pray. He didn't shake his head. He didn't roll his eyes. He didn't communicate a disparaging, I told you so, with some kind of harsh glare, passionate gaze. He simply looked into his eyes and gave him a kind, compassionate gaze. And beloved, this special look wasn't just reserved for Peter. This is how Christ looks upon all those who were his. Christ knows you and me as well as he knew Peter. He knows our temptations. He knows our sins. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our tendency, again, to overestimate ourselves and underestimate our enemy and our temptations. He knows our pride. He knows our arrogance. He knows our tendency to rely upon our own strength. He knows we fail to pray as we should. He he knows we fail to pray that we would not fall into temptation or to be led into temptation. He knows we fail to pray for the Father to deliver us from evil. Nothing's hidden from his view, and yet he loves us. He loves us. When we give in to our temptations and when we sin, he doesn't look at us with condemnation or disappointment, or disapproval, or disdain. He doesn't shake his head, or roll his eyes in disgust, or glare harshly when we fall. He looks upon us with compassion and mercy, and the gaze should lead us to do exactly what Peter did. Look at verse 62. When Peter saw the look, Luke says, he went out and wept bitterly. He saw the look and then he remembered what Jesus had spoken. He remembered everything that Christ had said regarding the denials, regarding the rooster crowing, and Peter began to weep. He began to sob with this uncontrollable intensity of emotion. There were tears of sorrow, there were tears of disappointment, there were tears probably of shame. He wasn't just overwhelmed because he got caught, he wasn't overwhelmed because he was going to have to suffer consequences for what he had done, he was overwhelmed and sorrowful for his sin, because he was experiencing a godly sorrow, not a worldly sorrow, but a godly sorrow. He looked into the eyes of Christ, he remembered what Christ had said and his words, Christ's words, became a mirror in which Peter looked and saw himself. And he hated what he saw. He hated what he had done. He hated the fact that he was tempted. He hated that he had fallen and, and succumbed to that temptation. He hated his faithlessness. He hated his failure. To listen and to heed Jesus' warning, to pray. Denier and then to a defector. He hated that he had committed treason against his king. He hated that he had failed to reciprocate the love and care and concern that had been shown to him. And from that moment on, things changed. His life was different, again, because he was experiencing a godly sorrow, not a worldly sorrow, a godly sorrow that leads, or led to repentance. It doesn't say so here, and I fought going ahead and sharing it, we'll save it for a couple of weeks, but we'll see in a couple of weeks that not only did he never deny Christ again, but he was willing to not only boldly proclaim the gospel but he was also willing to be unashamedly identified as someone who had been with Jesus straight from Acts 4. What he wasn't willing to do then, he would one day because he had repented. His godly sorrow led to repentance and the evidence, and we will see the evidence of which was fruit of a changed life. And, brothers and sisters, if there was hope for Peter, there's hope for all of us. And that's because Jesus, again, knows our weaknesses just as he knew Peter's weaknesses. He he knows our shortcomings, he knows our sins, and he looks upon us as he looked upon Peter with compassion and mercy. And he loves us so much that he has sent his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and he calls us to repentance. And he grants us repentance because it's a gift of his to us. We don't need to hide when we sin. Jesus is lovingly looking at us and calling us to himself, calling us to repent, to return, not to run away. But we need to remember that there is a difference between worldly remorse and godly remorse. In the words of J.C. Rao, remorse or worldly remorse can make a man miserable like Judas Iscariot, but it can do no more. It cannot lead him to God. Godly remorse, on the other hand, does lead us to God because godly remorse leads us to repentance. Godly remorse... Those who experience a godly remorse grieve over their sin, but there's also faith. Faith that believes and trusts in Christ and faith that believes and trusts in the fact that we are forgiven in Christ. So we do not lose hope. The evidence of godly sorrow that leads to true repentance is fruit of a changed life. One who is... Truly repent and understands the gravity of their sin, but also understands the immensity of the mercy of God. And while we hate and grieve our sin, we also turn away from it and toward God. And in the words of our confession, we purpose and endeavor to walk with Him in all the ways of His commandments. Right? We, we repent and we turn back and we seek to obey. By the power of the Spirit. And when we fail, we repent and turn back and seek to obey, right? It is a life of daily repentance. The bottom line is there is hope for anyone who turns to faith in Christ. No matter the type of sin, no matter the amount of sin, no matter the type of temptation, no matter how many times we fall to temptation. As we often sing here, His mercy is more. Right, our sins they are many; His mercy is more. And as we'll sing in just a minute, right, our souls can find rest in Him, and in Him alone. In the words of C.S. Lewis, though our feelings come and go, His love for us does not. It is not wearied by our sins or our indifference. And therefore, it is quite relentless in its determination that we shall be cured of those sins at whatever cost to us, at whatever cost to him. And it cost him a great deal. Which is the focus of our last point. You got to go back to verse 41. I skipped it on purpose. I didn't forget. After instructing Peter and the apostles to pray, Jesus goes and prays himself, right? He's told them, pray that you not enter into temptation. He goes and he finds a spot away from them so that he can be by himself and he kneels to pray. And even right away from his posture, we know that this is different than how he's been praying to the father previously, Because the typical posture of prayer was to stand with the arms held up, and here he's kneeling. And because Luke describes what Jesus is feeling as agony, I don't picture Jesus sitting on his knees with a straight back and his hands folded. I picture Jesus on his knees in the fetal position. Because that's the natural position of those in physical pain and emotional distress. Some of you have been there. And as he kneels, he begins to pray. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless not my will but yours be done. Now remember, he's been resolute up to this point, has he not? He was not going to be thwarted. We've said that over and over and over again. He was going to Jerusalem. He had set his face toward toward Jerusalem. He was not going to be denied. But now that he's there, he he began to reconsider. He was reconsidering what he had been so determined to accomplish. And we think to ourselves, how how can that be? How, How could Jesus reconsider? He was God, and the answer is he was and is, yes, he was and is truly God, but we cannot forget that he was and is truly man. Jesus Christ was both God and man, one person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. They were perfectly united, there was no mixture, and they could not be divided. That's just sound, orthodox Christology. That means Jesus had a divine will that he shared with the Father, right? Because he and the Father were one, but he also had a human will that was distinct. And that lets us know that whenever He did the Father's will, it wasn't involuntary. It was voluntary. In other words, it didn't just happen automatically. It was an act of volition. It was an act of the will. It was something. Every time He was obedient, it was something He chose to do. So in that moment in the garden... His human will was in the midst of a struggle with the divine will. And to understand what that struggle was about, we need to understand what he was asking. What is the cup? What's the cup that He wants the Father to remove? And we have to go back to the Old Testament and we look in places like Psalm 11, Psalm 75, Isaiah 51, Ezekiel 23, and Jeremiah 25 to understand that the cup is the cup of God's wrath and judgment. And so what Jesus is asking the Father to remove is to remove the cross upon which He will experience the full wrath and judgment of God for sin. In other words, he's not shying away from su- physical suffering and death, he's wanting to avoid the kind of death and the kind of suffering that would be associated with that kind of death, right? because he was to take on the holy, righteous anger of a just God that was due for human sin. He was to take it all upon himself. So we can understand the prospect. You know, he's thinking of that prospect and, and we understand the agony that he was feeling. Because Jesus is not just battling the power, powers of darkness. He's not just battling Satan at this point. He's experiencing a, an extreme conflict within his own soul. The Father was leading him to the cross. And he was pleading for an alternative. Listen to these words of one writer I read this week. He says, Jesus was in turmoil because he was going to death as the sin bearer, as the Lamb of God who would bear divine wrath to atone for the sin of his people. We can scarcely imagine the horror of this prospect. The God-man, pure and unstained by any sin of his own, was going to become sin so that in him his people would become the righteousness of God. The Savior was going to suffer the full weight of all the sins of his people. Little wonder then that he asked for another way to bring about the salvation of his people. Any other way. Father, please. And while the Father graciously sent an angel to minister to him, the alternative to the cross never came. And that's because there's no other way. No other way of salvation. The cross and the cross alone is the means of redemption. And so in the end, Jesus sets aside His own will. He sets aside His own will and submits Himself to the Father's will. And determines to take on the excruciatingly painful death that would be felt body and soul on behalf of others. He said his desire, so Peter, in the garden, he's doing nothing but self-preserving, right? He's just saving his own. Jesus, rather than seeking to preserve himself, sets that will aside so that he might preserve others. And we say, why is that important? Well, we speak regularly of how Christ's death on the cross was a substitutionary death and that he died on behalf of sinners. And we speak often and regularly of how Christ's death on the cross was a sacrificial death through which the guilt of our sin was atoned for through the payment of sin's debt and through which God's enmity was removed and his favor was restored. But what we don't speak of as often is that Christ's death on the cross was a willing death. It was something that he chose to do. There are those out there that believe that it was cosmic child abuse for the father to do this to the son. But the son went willingly. He chose to die for sin. And in the words of one pastor, we should never imagine that somehow all of this was easier for Jesus because he was the son of God. No, this was as hard a thing as any man has ever done. He never gave in, so the temptation never relented. And so having done so willingly, we know that he did so obediently. He did it out of love for his father. He did it out of love for those that the father had given him because they could not save themselves Brothers and sisters, Christ obediently, he willingly and therefore obediently died a sacrificial substitutionary death for all those who will look on him in faith. We therefore are not only benefactors of his having paid our debt-filled account, but we are benefactors of his obedience that was credited to our account, and that is the gospel. Period. And I only have three questions for you. Have you accepted that? And to accept it, you have to, need, you have to admit you need it. Have you accepted it? Are you resting in it? And will you defend it? Because the day will come. And the day is now here where we need to. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith and love, and to lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Bless those who have heard your word preached, and may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. For the sake of Christ and his church, I pray these things. Amen.